And we're live. Thank you for sticking with us and coming back for another episode. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in this function. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, who uh, who used to hang out with us when we were the sci-fi shenanigans, Mr. Yakov Merkin. Can you introduce yourself and tell me how to say your name right? Because I'm sure that's not it. Yeah, you were pretty close. Well, first of all, thanks for having me again. I know it's been a while since I was with you last time. Um, but uh, but yes, I mean, technically the proper way to pronounce my first name is Yakov, like the A is in like ah. Uh. Um, okay. But uh, otherwise, I mean, I'm a independent science fiction fantasy writer. I've been keeping pretty busy since my first book came out in 2017. I've published 13 novels of varying lengths and funding on Kickstarter the next five now. So, and uh, first series was more sci-fi. Second series now is more fantasy because I enjoy both and I can't make up my mind which one to focus on. <laughs> I can relate to that. All right, so the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first met them. So I actually found uh, Yakov. Oh, I butchered it. Uh, I'm just gonna keep trying and we'll go with it and blame it on being hard of hearing. Uh, but uh, we met a long time ago when we were both first starting out writing on the various author, like newbie author chats. And I just think both of us being army veterans, we just had sort of something to talk about. Um, although you didn't serve the same army I did. So, you know, it's, it's it was fun because you were in the Israeli army. It's fun to hear how much was, you know, despite being in different countries at different times, like how much of the, the experience was common about being in the military regardless of what flag you serve under there's some like I, that that just it's it's interesting to me so yeah lots of the memes are the same memes just reskinned for the different you know unit names yeah <laughs> and there's always that one guy who just like the carl the idiot who sniffed glue as a kid that guy there's always one of those yeah and what's the expression if you don't think there was that guy was you. <laughs> all right so before we get started i have to do this sir so the religion question star wars Star Trek or Firefly? It's hard to say because I've kind of soured on a lot of these classic franchises lately, but most of my life I would have said Star Wars followed closely by Star Trek, depending on you know, my mood or depending on which which era of the franchise we were in at the time. I think my, my sci-fi is definitely more Star Wars and Star Trek inspired. So, I mean, but not by a huge degree, so. Okay. Um, I've heard, and we've had this discussion on different episodes where people have said part of the love of Firefly is the nostalgia because it ended so soon, and that had they kept it going, we would have been just as jaded on that one too. Yeah, entirely likely. Because, uh, you know, eventually they all get to the jump the shark moment where they have the musical and it just goes downhill from there. Yeah. All right. And because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time? Um, probably Wheel of Time in terms of, at least in terms of how much time I've invested into it and how often I how like them to go back to reading. I mean, movie wise, obviously the Lord of the Rings films far, far outclassed the Wheel of Time TV show that recently came out. But in terms of books, I think I'd be much more likely to reread Wheel of Time. Hopefully sooner. Well, hopefully once I get out of my boxes that were shipped overseas. 
so the one bad thing about the Wheel of Time versus the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings movies tried to keep closer to the the lore. Yeah. So so there was more coherent narrative because it was as it was written. You can change the lore and keep it coherent, but it has to be an intentional thing. I think the Wheel of Time just tried to pick and choose for the movie. And then it didn't do so in a coherent manner. So, like, people that haven't read it, like, I'm so confused. People that have read it are like, wait, you changed all the good parts and nobody was happy? Yeah, I mean, season one, Wheel of Time was probably one of the worst adaptations of a series that I liked that I've seen. And I don't know how it got another season, let alone I think it's for season three already. I don't know. I guess I guess yeah. Amazon sunk enough money into it that they're you know sunk cost you know fallacying it to just just keep it going as long as they can because they're like you will you like know, it dang it yeah <laughs> somehow we'll make a profit off of this so all right but because we here at the Blasters and Blades like both the fantastical and the scientific what was your first love sci-fi or fantasy um, probably sci-fi because I grew up watching original Star Trek and then of course you know Star Wars shortly after that. Well, I, I've always read more like fantasy in the, in the way of books, but in terms of more visual media like movies, uh, TV, and video games, it was more uh, sci-fi than fantasy for most of my life. So I know you were raised in the U.S. and then you went to Israel to serve later in your life. Well, later in your life, like you're that old. Yeah. But um, was yeah, this was is the, the sci-fi? So. Yeah, is the sci-fi fantasy scene there different than America, or is it pretty much um, the same as what we're getting? Um, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, it's obviously smaller because it's a much smaller country. But beyond that, in terms of what people like, I think it's, you know, relatively similar. I mean, I'll see people on the street, you know, with occasionally with, you know, Star Wars shirts, things like that. And when I go to conventions, like, you know, there's plenty of people cosplaying. I mean, a lot, I mean mo conventions, I mostly see actually anime cosplays. The, the okay. ones I've been to. So, okay. yeah, I mean, people so seem to like, you know, like the big stuff, you know, the same same amount of people like the big stuff overseas and also bigger franchises are more likely to have been translated um you know for oh, languages okay. so there's you know more accessibility for those i guess too that makes sense so uh what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction as a genre was it watching those star wars movies as a kid was it reading books playing video games like where did you discover the genre uh well probably it's it goes back to star trek and my parents are both like big Trekkies, like original series fans. So like they would have that on, you know, even before I could probably remember, you know, while having it on, you know, while I was a baby and stuff. So I um, mean, apparently like I was, you know, like aware of that even before I remember. And then obviously once I got a little bit older, then I actually started watching it and understanding <laughs> well, what it was. So uh, I'd say definitely Star Trek in that respect. Okay. The, um, so what is it about speculative fiction, the large uh, umbrella genre that you love so much? Um, I like the the creativity that it you know allows us to have in terms of you know in fantasy and sci-fi. If you want to, you don't you don't necessarily have to because obviously it's different subgenres in both fantasy and sci-fi. But you could create you know your entire entire worlds, entire galaxies if you want. So just in terms of you know what what. Um, how I guess how open it is to just being creative is just a lot more fun of a sandbox of playing most of the time compared to just, you know, setting stuff in the real world, although there is plenty to do there also. Okay. So how did your love of speculative fiction, the genre um, that you, you grew up sort of 
consuming from infancy almost. How did that translate into you deciding to write stories in that space? Like, where did that shift happen? Uh, I think I first started getting the idea to write. I think this must have been like maybe in fifth grade or sixth grade. So it was a long time ago now. I can't remember exactly if there was anything specific that spurred me to want to write beyond just enjoying stuff in that in those genres and wanting to create something of my own. I mean, over time, I guess to an extent it's become, I could do that better or like there would be a, something that I watch or read that like, like I enjoyed, but there were things that I kind of would have liked to see done a little bit differently or just the idea of how it would be done differently, which is more fun to think about. And there, from there it kind of morphs into actually writing something, you know, my own. And, um, but I think a lot of it is because after having grown up, you know, reading so much and watching so much, it just comes naturally to want to create something of my own, you know, in in the genres that I enjoyed, you know, for my whole life. That makes sense. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the way they tell stories. So do you feel like there were any specific formidable moments that shaped the way you as a storyteller? Um. In terms of how I tell the stories, I'm not sure if anything comes directly to mind. Although, of course, you know, life experiences do impact stuff like my my newest series. The main character is an IDF soldier, you know, who also immigrated from the U.S. to Israel. So obviously I drew a little bit on my own experience. If that also I put him in the same unit that I was in because why wouldn't I? But um, so in terms of specific stories, definitely influenced it a little bit in terms of how I tell the stories. Not that I can think of, although obviously I, I do also kind of draw on some religious elements in terms of just how how I view you know my place as the creator of the stories and how that impacts the type of stories I tell, maybe, but not necessarily the the how I write. If that makes sense. It does. So, what did you do when you were in the IDF? Uh, I had a nice, boring desk job sitting at the radio on my base. I don't know what the exact corollary would be. In the U.S., I mean, the, the Hebrew, the room that I worked in was essentially, it translates to war room, which is much cooler sounding than it actually was. I'd be the guy on the radio to this, everybody who was on guard duty at my base would, you know, check in every hour to make sure things were okay, or if anybody had to come visit the base, I would, you know, be the one that would have a list of who was approved to come in that day or have the number of the officer, you know, on watch to basically confirm with them if somebody could come in or not. And if anything big had happened while I was in the army, then, you know, all the info for whatever, you know, crisis was going on would have, you know, come through me and then gone through me to whoever needed to get it. And then, you know, relayed back through there uh, more or less. So people who, who did the same job as me in a more busy part of the country could have probably had a very different, you know, experience doing it than I did where I was up, you know, North where it was very quiet and I more or less, volunteered for my for night shifts all the time and I wrote four books while I was there so <laughs> so the um the unit that you were in obviously you did comps was that a specifically a communications unit or was it a headquarters uh, unit or no it was that it was essentially the command base for one of our okay. armored brigades so, so we've just uh, obviously talking about your time in the in the IDF but um, so we ask all of our authors who are also military veterans this question but do you feel like your time in the army affects the stories you tell uh, yeah, to an extent, it's hard to say in a more general sense, but obviously, you know, it didn't it did influence my, my current project. 
um, you know, fairly directly. And, uh, and obviously it gives me more of an appreciation for, you know, military aspects of things that someone who's never been in the military wouldn't, wouldn't pick up on without, you know, looking into it, um, you know, deliberately, like, you know, that whole joke about, you know, what, what military grade actually means or you know, how, how militaries function or don't function. Okay. So do you ever draw on people that you knew while you were in the military, either as individuals or archetypes? Um, maybe a little bit, nothing, nobody specific is coming to mind as like a direct parallel to anybody else in terms of anybody is in terms of people who I interacted with myself, obviously going to like historical stuff. There's some of this, you know, there's more of that because there's more info on, you know, that person available or it's, you know, something bigger that they were involved in that's easier to do that with. But I think it was more, I guess, you know, in a more passive way. I mean, probably like when, like when I am writing um, scenes in my current series where there's, you know, like different, all different levels of officers and stuff, I guess to an extent I am thinking about people that I knew a little bit in terms of, you know, how they might act or, or things like that, but not, you know, nothing like, I don't think I have any side characters or anything that's directly based off of anybody that I know. So that's the one place where we're going to see some differences to the for the U.S. listeners and our military versus yours, because the Israeli, like everybody serves, at least I think Israel and Germany both do that, where everybody serves. I think Turkey, too. So you're going to have more of, I think, a cross section of everyone instead of attracting certain types of people. And then you're going to get less of the go to war or go to jail, like enlist so you don't get in trouble, troublemaker types, because everyone's enlisting anyway. But yeah. uh, so yeah. I, I would wonder if that changes some of the archetypes. But that'd be something that we might we might have to do a fireside chat about at a different time when we're not waking you up at 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> so we talked about how the your time in the Army affects the way you tell stories. But do you think it affects, since you've, you've served, how you consume content as a reader or a viewer of, uh, of speculative fiction? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I think I'm definitely more aware, you know, when I'm reading stuff with military aspects in it of like, you know, things that are, you know, a little, probably a little bit less than accurate to how military is really function. It doesn't really bother me most of the time, unless it's really something egregious. But I mean, I guess I am definitely more aware of, you know, the realities of certain things and just, I guess, more appreciative of, of, you know, how, how people who are in that situation function. Like, you know, like the whole, like, I think I, I, I got mentioned this while I was in the army, actually, like, I, I understand like in movies, all these people who are on guard duty who are just not paying attention because they're just bored out of their mind, because that's how it is most of yeah. your life too. So I understand. Um, I understand all the henchmen now in uh, in movies a little better. Than yeah, <laughs> it's what ninety percent boredom and five percent action, and then the other five, yeah. no one knows yeah. what the hell's going on. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so transitioning from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So have you got any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your characters yet? Unfortunately, not yet, but I'm hoping that, especially since I've started doing conventions locally, that people will start to get to know me a little bit more and know my stuff more, and that sooner rather than later, I will see some. Actually, someone at a convention a few months ago did say that they would want to try and cosplay at least one of my characters. I can't remember which one. I, could, I didn't know which one offhand because they were looking at my book cover that was facing away from me and pointing at a character on it, and I couldn't tell which one they were pointing at. But still, it's somebody who said they wanted to cosplay one of my characters. So who knows? Maybe when I go to the next convention in October, they'll come by again and 
being cosplay. And if so, then that'd be really cool. So for, for those of you who are cosplaying outside of Israel and you want to uh, to do that, he'd love for you to uh, take pictures and send it to him at his, uh, his newsletter if you're, if you're cosplaying his stuff, because that's the kind of thing every author wants to see. So we'll uh, we'll go ahead and link to his his newsletter as well as his other social medias as usual in the show notes. So don't forget to check that out. But uh, has anyone asked for your autograph since you've uh, started writing? Um, once that I could think of so far at a convention, there's somebody who was buying who bought a book, and then a couple seconds later just came back to ask for my autograph. I guess you know they figured if you're buying it from the author, might as well get an autograph because you never know you know if you yeah. work something one day. I guess, but. I think yeah, it's the only time that I can think of at least recently that somebody directly asked me for that. I mean, occasionally, like I think I have the autograph stuff for like, you know, family or friends, or I did, you know, like a, like a, an event a couple of years ago back in the States, you know, mostly friends and family there. So I signed some books there, but that was kind of as I was doing it by default, not you know specifically ask for it. Okay. So uh, if someone wanted an autograph copy that isn't um, local to you, is there a way for them to do that on your website to ask for it? I mean, uh, just I mean, someone could always just contact me by through my website or through Twitter or something if they want one. The only you know the challenge would just be getting the book to me because it would have to be shipped you know to me and then back to wherever they are. I mean, I'm willing to do it if someone wants to pay the shipping cost for that. I'm happy to you know sign stuff, but that's why I don't offer my Kickstarter you know signed copies because I would have to first ship all that you know through Amazon or, or Lulu or whatever to me and then back back to my you know the reader which is more likely going to be abroad and i would just feel i felt like it would just be charging too much shipping for that to make it worthwhile to offer at least as a default uh, option so do, does amazon have pod options in in your um, home country now or not yet unfortunately i think it there was talk about amazon building like a warehouse or something here which might have precluded you know eventually having that but then i think COVID happened or whatever and then that project is i think still going to happen but i think it's been on hold or at least slowed down yeah so, so thinking right, if you had right. if you had the pod model on site then at least it's only one way shipping because you don't yeah. have to ship it to you and then back that makes it a lot more affordable for people yeah at some point I, you know i use you know friends or family if they're coming over from the states sometimes you know to you know order books to the states and then somebody will bring a few over or i, or I might look into like flat rate boxes to see if i could just you know still have to pay uh shipping but find a little bit more affordable way to get you know batches of books here for things like conventions and stuff so so i find better ways the, to do that it'll be easier to have you know on hand stock to do things like that so if his books sound interesting when we get through there uh all of his social media it also includes his website and i'm sure if that kind of stuff happens that's a good place to go to keep up to date on it because you know that's just one of those things you can only control what you can control but uh finally have you ever spotted anyone out in public reading one of your books? Uh, not reading them per se, though I have met at least one person uh, at an event or something who had read one of my books who I who I didn't know personally beforehand, which was kind of neat. And I guess also oh. at least well at least once at a convention, somebody came to buy books after having seen somebody else who had previously bought a copy carrying it around. It was also kind of cool to see. So. Okay, that counts. I'll take it. Um, so this is the part, dear listener, where Yakov is going to tell us everything he has written. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of works? Uh, yeah, so my first series was the, uh, the Galaxy Ascendant series. 
like a very Star Wars style sci-fi that seven books all finished now. And I will be doing more in that setting at some point in the future, but that series is, you know, self-contained and complete at this point. So that was my first seven books. I also have one epic fantasy book, The Dragon Hand, that I will get back to that series eventually, but I realized a couple of years ago that I'm better off, you know, at least at this point in my career, focusing on one project at a time, more or less, because marketing is a little bit easier that way. Um, so there's one book of that. I also have a history book that I published a couple of, a few years ago now that was my essentially my master's thesis that I decided to publish because I knew how to do it and it was easy to you know, set up and everything. And then part and part from that, I have my new series, Light Unto Another World, which is um, a more anime-inspired fantasy, isekai fantasy, which is same as essentially as portal fantasy. And that is five volumes are released now and kickstarting the next five volumes right now as we record this. So the good news is if you were interested in his sci-fi shenanigans interview about the uh, Galaxy Ascendant, I believe, with, um, yeah. theories, that is Archive Episode 36. So if you want to check that out, you can listen to to him talking about that one. That was one of the ones we were able to save, and we're slowly going through the archives and, and re-releasing those ones. So go ahead and check that out. Um, and real quick, those all sound fascinating, but obviously if you're looking at the picture on the uh, on the YouTubes, if you're listening there, we have the book covers for a certain series, Light Unto Another World. So where did you get the premise for this universe? Like, how did you come up with the basic idea? Well, this series came about a little bit more, well, it was kind of a mix of inspirations. One was I had gotten back into anime a couple of years ago, I think in late 2019 or something like that. And so some of the stuff that I ended up watching was, um, you know, fantasy stuff. And there's, you know, it's pretty popular genre these days in anime of, you know, essentially portal fantasy isekai where somebody from our world ends up in a fantasy world and gets involved in adventures over there and while it's a fun genre it's also a genre where you could do a lot of different things like a lot of the stuff that comes out and that gets big or is you know the popular shows are kind of lowest common denominator stuff where you know very yes generic or very repetitive and you know especially with the main character archetypes that are they're usually essentially the same person just with a slightly different you know, design in terms of their personality, or they're also very passive characters. And so I got the idea is like, would it, be, would it wouldn't be interesting to write somebody, write this kind of series with a main character who's a little bit more proactive or, or who has some kind of life skills beyond being like a gamer or as a nerd. And so right. that, you know, from there was a quick jump, you know, to making him a soldier and then obviously making him an Israeli soldier because that's something that I, you know, that I, that I knew well enough to, to put in and also i realized no one else no one else would do that kind of story but me so i was like okay well who else would do it so i'll do it and uh, and make it work okay well before we dig too deeply into this uh this fascinating series because that is obviously if you're looking at the screen what we are here for um we're going to pause for a moment where we shamelessly show for the man Mythic heroes throughout history tamed creatures of lore to fight alongside them. Video games took up the mantle, and for decades, players adopted beasts for companions. Some had tigers, others lions, dinosaurs, some even had dragons. So when my consciousness was transferred into the most realistic virtual game ever created, I chomped at the bit 
hoping to befriend a great beast to fight at my side. And what did I get? A porcupunk. Who needs a dragon anyway? Read a book. Ignora. So uh, if you are listening and uh, not viewing that commercial, the graphics were amazing. And he was showing us his book covers when you were getting the musical interlude at the end. Um, and listen to them. Read a book and then write a review because that matters too. But yeah, uh, all right, we are <laughs> – that's right. Reviews are important. So um, – Speaking of reviews are important, can they, if they buy this on Kickstarter, can you review it there or do they have to hop over to Amazon? I know. I mean, Amazon is where the place would be to put the review because on Kickstarter you can put comments, but it doesn't really translate to people who might happen upon the books <clears throat> after the campaign seeing it there. So the Amazon is still the best place. I guess, I guess Goodreads also, because I know it's an issue with some people, at least in Israel, because it's not as Amazon is as popular here. I think there's a rule on Amazon. You have to like, spend a certain amount of money there per year if you want to be able to leave reviews on stuff, which is kind of annoying. So for any of the people who at least locally who want to review stuff, I'll often point them to Goodreads now because I don't think there's any restrictions on posting reviews there. But obviously Amazon is the best place to post reviews because that's where most people buy their books these days. And more reviews, the better it looks. Okay. I am... Um... Not as familiar as buying books on Kickstarter. I've backed a few games that way, like some RPG stuff. But um, I didn't even realize people were doing um, books. I I, I heard, like, obviously, we've talked about Galaxy Ascendant when you did that. And I was like, oh, that's a niche thing to do. And then Brander Sanderson did it, and everybody's doing it. And it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. So um, will this be coming out in audio as well? Uh, not yet. I mean, there was a, There is a stretch hole in the campaign. That would get an audiobook for volume one, but that's a pretty high stretch goal. So I'm not sure we're going to get there. But at some point, I would love to do audio. It's just a matter of, you know, if making it worth worthwhile in terms of how much it costs to make one versus how many people I would expect to to buy one. But it would definitely be a fun thing to do. You know, at some point, maybe not. Okay. Uh, now. So I'm going to zoom in on some of these individual covers so people can see them. So where does the uh, what's the story behind this art? Because I, I do think it's amazing. I could definitely see these on as a poster on my son's wall. He's into the anime stuff. So like I, I I've seen this kind of image before. But what was the inspiration for your art? Well, a lot of it was you know anime itself. Like I said, I've been I was watching a lot of anime, especially fantasy anime, over the last couple of years. And so when I was going to do this series, I knew I wanted to do it in that aesthetic, and also I think it would be a little bit easier to market because people like this kind of art style these days, you know, beyond just the genre and uh, be fun to do. Also, it's a little bit more affordable in terms of, you know, artist costs for making covers like this for, uh, for the series than it was for my other series. Um, I guess because, uh, because of the style, because of uh, other, other, other aspects, but because I, these are shorter books, I didn't want to spend, you know, quite as much per cover for books that are half as long as I did for my Galaxy Ascendant series or the Dragon Hand. And yeah, but mainly, mainly was a genre thing because I was inspired by, you know, anime stuff in the first place. So it just made sense to keep that style. So um, for my series, what is the length of these books? I do like the detail where you have the star of David on the, from the Israeli flag up on the armor. Like the, the attention to detail your artist did was, is, is on point. 
Yeah, he's I mean he's he's been amazing to work with for the last years. I mean he puts more thought into some things than I put into it. Like the thing on my characters on the line, the previous cover, the one where they're standing. Um, I don't know. If, uh, this one. Go back. No, no, the one with the this one. Um, like the thing on his arm, like on yeah. his on his right forearm, like that. He like he has it. My artist made like a whole little like layout design for that, like more but more thought into it than I put in in terms of how that little mirror could pop, that little lens could pop up on his arm. Because he has, a, my character has the ability to use light magic. So at some point he realizes, oh, if I could put, you know, make a powerful, powerful enough light behind the lens, I could kind of create a little heat ray. And so my artist to draw that for the, you know, on, on his outfit, he really came back with like a whole, you know, much more detailed design for it than, than even I thought of when I was first concepting it, you know, as a piece of equipment for the series. So, okay. I'm liking some of this art. We'll, we'll go through that, and we'll get back to talking yeah. about. It. Like, I'm I'm digging the art. The conquistador helmet is is uh, I'm digging it. <laughs> so, and then the attention to detail with just all of it. It's just you you found a good one. Yeah, I really even did. to the I mean, point. Terms, yeah, as you say, even to the point with like the yamaka that he's wearing to to fit with with an IDF soldier. You know. Yeah, I mean, he's been very good to work with in terms of you know communication about you know details or things like that, and. Like in terms of the quality of the art to like how much you know, what his rates are, I don't think I can find anybody better on the planet right now. <laughs> so I mean, I'm working with him on other projects too after the tour. I'm actually, well, I'm going to kind of be doing both at once. I'm actually working on a manga project, a comic for uh, hoping to start with that next year, but that's, that's a little bit further down the line. But he's going to be doing that also with me because I just enjoy working with him that much. Anything that I do in this style, I want to, you know, stick with the same guy. It's really okay. a good experience. So that's uh, that is amazing. I'm digging the art, but um, let's move on to <clears throat> sorry to the books themselves. Obviously, this Kickstarter for books six through ten, so one through five are already out there. So if they haven't, if this sounds interesting and they wanted to back this, how would they get the first five books? Uh, they could get the first five through the Kickstarter. Also, like there's there's a tier for getting all ten eBooks for just eighteen dollars. So that's one option, okay. and also there are paper, paperback options also through the Kickstarter. There's I think I have one reward where you get all 10 paperbacks plus ebooks, and then other ones where I have each set of five paperbacks as its own separate reward. So anybody who, if somebody wants to just get the first five, they can get the first five paperback, and that's that. And they can even just get the first five ebooks, things like $10 for the five ebooks. So they can get them all through the Kickstarter, which right now is the best way, and especially for, especially for the ebooks, the cheapest way to get the books in terms of you know cost per book. But and I mean, obviously they're also on Amazon too. All my release books are on Amazon, so they're there as well. But like I said, Kickstarter is running now, and I want to you know get that as big as possible. So better to get it on the Kickstarter um, at least you know while it's live. So obviously, if this is in um, Kickstarter and on Amazon, it's not Kindle Unlimited. Does this mean you've taken it wide for our Barnes and Noble the, readers? No, the ones that are out are Kindle Unlimited. I think if I remember correctly. Because Amazon doesn't care about you know how you're funding it beforehand; they just care, I guess, when you're publishing it, um, where they do so, where, where where you put it. So I mean, I can, oh. I, what I'll do is like I, the ebooks e e I'll email directly to people after the Kickstarter is over, and okay. um, and then I would say people buy it, you know, outside the Kickstarter, we just get it through Amazon. But I think it's on Kindle Limited. I'm pretty sure, at least. Is there any point, a plan at some point for these to go? Because we do have some listeners, obviously, that buy through like Barnes and Noble or mm -hmm. or other sites. Is there any plans? Because this is, I mean, this sounds like a fun idea for those readers that to, to be able to get those books eventually or no? 
Uh, yeah, possibly. I'd have to just you know find the time to look into how to you know organize that and how to set all that up to just you know make sure that I could do it right. But okay. I definitely want to make it as available as possible for anybody who wants to read it because more the more the merrier. So how long roughly is each book? Like for you said these were shorter than your Galaxy Ascendant book. So how long are yeah, they? Yeah, each book is about fifty thousand words, so about two hundred or so pages each. Okay, that's not too bad. So yeah. that's um that's a pulp novel era size, if you're familiar with those, dear listener. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch for this series be? Uh, well, uh, an IDF soldier ends up stranded in another world and decides to to meddle with things and get heavily involved in the goings-on over there. I think one of, the, one of the things I said also when I first started writing is, because it's a Star Trek reference, is uh, Prime Directive, what's that? <laughs> okay. So... Do you cover how he gets to the other world, or is it just sort of fait accompli I mean, it, and you start no, I mean, there? No, I mean it, it, it happens in within the first five pages. I mean, it's not I don't dwell on it too much. I mean, essentially, a, not a spoiler. Essentially, a portal opens up and pulls him in on the way on the way to base one day by one you know one Sunday morning, and then you just you know a thing opens, pulls him in, and then it closes behind him, and and then he's there. So I, I didn't waste any time getting him over there. So is it one of those things where? Um, is he, he's sort of a chosen one, or is it more he just happened to be wrong place, right time? Uh, a little bit of both, without getting into spoilers. I mean, there it was something intentional that did pull him there, but there's there's more to it in terms of how he himself ended up there, um, as opposed to just you know some other person, basically. Okay, so what? Um do you think makes the series special? What makes you stand out in the space that is the Isekai books, I believe you said it was? Yeah. yeah. And just fantasy in general. Um, well, the, well, one big thing is that, like I said, I, I mentioned already that I wanted a more proactive character than you often see as a protagonist in this genre. Um, somebody who also has, I guess, you know, different life experience than most characters in the, in the genre, and also somebody who has like a more set uh, worldview that impacts his decisions versus somebody who, you know, is pulled to the other world and told, oh, you're, you're here to do this, this, and this. And then they just say, okay, I'm going to go do it. My character in the first book, when he ends up, you know, he kind of, something, I guess, kind of went wrong with whatever spell pulled him over there. And he ended up, instead of wherever they were summoning them to, summoning him to, he ended up kind of in like, you know, a more countryside area. And then he finds, he sees like there's the problem going on there. And so he decides, you know, before I go do what I'm told I'm supposed to do in terms of, you know, going to the capital city to find out, you know, exactly why I'm here, I'm going to help out these people here and solve this problem for them. And so that's kind of really sets the theme for, you know, his approach to things. Like when he sees a problem, he wants to, you know, fix it as best he can, help people as best he can, also especially if it reminds him of something that he knows from our world. There's something also that I wanted to really keep, because like, a lot of these characters in the genre like seem to just forget about their past life once they end up in the fantasy world and just never talk about it and it doesn't really impact what they do. So my character, I wanted him, you know, to be very influenced by where he came from and when his beliefs, like he's, he's also a religious character. So his, you know, his, you know, his faith also very much informs his actions and, you know, it leads him, you know, down different paths in terms of what he does. So I really wanted just a character who's, you know, not, not a blank slate type who is really, is a character on himself who you know is is fun to follow and who you want to root for. 
So do you encounter other people from the our world, if you would, uh, in the series, or is he the only one? Or is that a spoiler? Uh, kind of a spoiler. I mean, I guess by saying it's a spoiler, that kind of you know, it kind of implies yes, but I won't say in what context or how that ends up happening because that is definitely a spoiler. Okay, that's fair. We obviously we go for spoiler free because we want people to read the dang books. Yes. Reading is yes. fundamental, people. Uh, we learned that on uh, on all the shows as kids, and it was true then, and it is true now. So which tropes do you feel like Light Unto Another World, the series, sort of think broadly? Because you're doing a Kickstarter where you could potentially get books one through ten. So instead of like just doing book one, it just felt appropriate to do the whole series, which we don't normally do. But what tropes do you feel like your series hits the best? Um, I mean, in terms of what? In terms of like the story itself, in terms of the characters? I mean, I have, you know, a bunch of the characters are, you know, different types, you know, I guess archetypes you might see. In different stories, I have a you know a pretty wide you know supporting cast because I like my my diverse you know non-human characters. So, so in any way you want to answer the question as far as which tropes you 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 used, if any, um, some people don't think in those terms; they just write because they read a lot, so the ideas come and they write them down. Some people intentionally say, "Okay, there's this trope, let me use it or let me invert it to subvert expectations." Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything directly comes to mind in terms of. Like I said, I, I don't really think most of the time in terms of tropes, or I might realize, oh, this character fits an archetype or fits with this plot element, you know, fits this trope. I don't usually go into the story saying I'm going to have this trope in there. So it's a little bit harder to think of stuff specifically. Okay. But obviously, obviously, like I said, a, lot of, a bunch of the side characters have different archetypes that you might see in different stuff in the same you know, genre in the anime, you know, style fantasy, and just in different personality types also. Like, you know, there's the much more... Um, like, you know, some, you know, quieter characters, some more, you know, much more, I guess, outgoing or, you know, you know, happy-go-lucky type character and just, you know, different. And it's just always just really fun to have different personality types in the same group because they all play off each other in, a, in fun ways. So. Okay. So what genre or subgenre would this fit into? I know you said it was fantasy in the introduction. And you yeah, said it was yeah. isekai. Is isekai its own subgenre? I'm not familiar with. Yeah, it. I mean it's more of a Japanese subgenre where I think in the light novel, which these count as light novels because there's illustrations inside. Um, so I mean, but essentially it's the same as portal fantasy. So okay. like you know, going back to you know things like a kid in, like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, or I guess even Narnia technically counts as anybody in you know, the stories of anybody who goes from from our world to a fantasy world. So that's you know the wider genre, and I'm sure the Japanese stuff was inspired by those classics also. Um, okay, so that would really be great. I guess I guess also it would fall under adventure fantasy because it's you know very narrow. It's like a first person perspective, so it's a single point of view, so more narrow focused than you know the epic fantasies that can get much more sprawling with you know multiple viewpoints all over the place. This is very much you know one character following you know through his. Through his uh, view, I might at some point add, you know, occasional interlude chapters if the plot requires it, but I haven't had to do so yet. So for now, it's still much more on the adventure side of fantasy versus the epic side. So are there a lot of, of the isekai style uh, stories that are written and not in like manga form or? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are in manga form. I, mean, I think the, the, more, the most common pipeline, at least in Japan, is somebody will write a light novel or a web novel, which is where they essentially just post it online instead of publishing it, you know, in a more you know, book way. And then at some point we get adapted to, to a manga 
And then, you know, then if it does well enough, then it could get an anime adaptation after that. But that's usually the most kind of, well, there are some stories that end up first as a manga and then they write a light novel to go along with it or make an anime based on it. But like I said, I mean, same way, in, you know, in the West, people usually go, you know, for, you know, book and then maybe a comic and then, you know, a TV show or something because writing books is the cheapest for the creator to do. Yeah. Um, so does the light novel mean that it has illustrations or is that just the genre? I'm just not yeah, as familiar know, with that. Yeah, term. yeah, I'm not sure if that's a hard requirement, though it generally is assumed that a light novel will include illustrations inside. Does yours so include illustrations? Yeah, there's yeah. The first five volumes have seven illustrations per volume, and the second five are guaranteed at least five. And I'd hope to add two more. I mean, there are stretch goals on the campaign, so if we hit those stretch goals, they'll for sure have an extra two per book for a total of seven per book. And even if we don't get there, I might you know try and depending depending on you know how much I end up with, I guess I really want to keep it consistent in terms of how much art there is per volume. But yeah, each each book has minimum of five and they said the first five that are out already have uh, seven illustrations per volume so before we start talking about the main character let's talk about that art for a second obviously if you get the stretch goals you, you commission the art like that i get that part is there any way for people to purchase even if it's like a pod model of a way to do it where they could buy the art as like a poster uh, not yet. That's something that I have to figure out the logistics for. I, hopefully, in future Kickstarters, I'll be able to offer that as a reward. But like I said, it's just a little bit more complicated logistics-wise, considering where I am, and just figuring out places that I could get it printed, you know, in an affordable enough way. So I do. I am. I do hope at some point, also soon, to maybe put a couple of the arts on the T-shirt or something, and make it available, you know, outside of Kickstarter, and then obviously in future Kickstarter campaigns, maybe offer that as a reward. I mean, well, and there are also a couple of different reward options on the campaign that could get a back or original art. There's like a high, like a high tier reward that um, you get to create a side character who's going to, who will guarantee to appear at least once, probably more than once in the series. And that includes a full color illustration of the character you create. And also have like a promotion tier for somebody who wants, if they want, if they have their own book or their own other project to promote, that can be, they'll be able to get um, a full color art of of one of the characters in the book, kind of like holding up a sign, you know, promoting their project or something. That's a neat uh, concept. So, how much do they have to pay if they want uh, you to come to their house and read them the novels? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> we have to pay for my airfare. For <laughs> that makes it a little bit expensive. <laughs> Unless they're in it, right. it'd be kind of expensive. All right, so let's talk about the story itself. So you've given us a little bit about the main character, but what do you think makes him unique in the crowded field that is Isaka fiction? Um, well, mostly, like I said, his proactive nature that he's he's on a he's on a guy who's going to be like, okay, I'm I'm brought to this world and I'm told by people who brought me here who I don't know to do X, Y, and Z. Like his first action when he gets there is like he sees a problem at a place where he first essentially lands. And he's like, hey, well, I'm not going anywhere until I help you with this because it kind of reminds me of something that I've seen back home. And I, and like on this world, I'm not held back by, you know, the government or military, you know, um, red tape. So I, he's like, you realize that he has the opportunity to really make a difference without anybody stopping him in terms of, you know, legal, in a legal sense, at least that he uh, answers to. And so he decides to get involved in that. And that really kind of snowballs without spoiling anything 
into you know whatever he, other stuff he gets into down the line in terms of you know the, the other conflicts that that you know emerge starting at middle of like, I guess maybe book two or book three well kind of book one but it kind of really escalates in more in book three where things go past the point of no return in terms of the main conflict of the series so how and much also, time yeah. oh go ahead no and also that he's that he's that he's, a, that he's a, a religious character usually you don't see characters like that in really any fantasy these days let alone this type of fantasy so i wanted him to be religious and that you know openly religious which informs his actions and his decisions that he that he encounters also kind of makes things a little bit different a little bit some other challenges for him in terms of you know jewish law and what he's allowed to do like there are, you know things that he could eat things that he can't eat and other stuff like that you know in terms of i'm, I'm going to it too much in detail in the books because i don't want to overload you know readers who aren't jewish with that stuff because i want it to be accessible to everybody to read but it's there and I, they said that's like nobody else would do this but me because i don't know anybody else that i could think of who's you know religious jewish who would who was writing this time this type of stuff so that was also fun to add in in terms of it gives him another dimension to him and also it does impact story elements beyond just you know background things eventually so yeah i wouldn't even like of all the things i would have thought as a plot complication it never would have occurred to me to the dietary restrictions but it makes sense that you know the the jewish character would need to keep kosher and i mean you have the same issue if it was a muslim character with halal yeah. but you know the average rank and file like that's just not something that even occurred to me to consider so that alone i think makes you stand out yeah um, like I said, this thing is the first fantasy series where i have um you know a jewish character with the yarmulke on you know on the cover i only have ever seen it before so it's like that's why that's part of why i did also i wanted to vary you know what he's wearing so some you know some covers he has his helmet on some he has nothing on but I wanted a few where he has, you know, the yarmulke on because I never saw that before. And I, I've, I'm in a position where I could do it. So I'm going to do it. I, I like it. So how much time does he spend angsting over whatever, you know, family, loved ones that he left behind? Because obviously he had a life that he left. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't spend too much. He is like a practical kind of guy where he's, you know, he, you know, he understands, you know, his situation. He's not going to let let himself kind of get bogged down and being like, like about things that he can't really control at this point. But obviously it does come up. Like, I mean, more, it's mostly in the first book where he's like, he's first realizing, Oh wait, I might be stuck here forever. And I have no idea how I'm going to get back. So it comes up a bit and he, you know, and then later on, occasionally it'll come up, you know, now and again, in terms of, in terms of well, sometimes in relation to specific events coming on that makes him think of stuff. Or somebody reminds him of a relative or like you know a little younger sibling or something or and also obviously just you know religious religious aspect because there are plenty of religious things that a jewish person really has a hard time doing or can't do if you're the only jew on the planet so that you know comes up occasionally too but like i said he's he's very much a practical kind of character so he doesn't let it he doesn't let that kind of you know eat him up too much because he has too much else going on that he has to focus on to, you know, to worry too much about things that are beyond his control. So you mentioned somewhat of, you know, potential Kickstarter goal where they could get secondary characters included into the story. But so far, you've obviously written the first five already. I'm assuming yeah. books yeah. six through 10 haven't been written yet. No, they're already finished. They're okay. Right now. So were there any secondary characters in the series that were especially memorable to you? Well, yeah. Well, there's you no know, the the main the main you know group that is a total of seven characters, including the main characters. So the six main supporting characters obviously are all I mean, they're the ones on the cover arts, 
um, you know, usually next to the main character. So they're obviously very you know, memorable to me. I mean, the, in terms of in terms of the the backer created characters, the ones I think out of the four um, that people created for the first Kickstarter campaign, I think at least three of them have since reappeared beyond their first appearance. And the fourth one will show up at some point again because if they're already in the world and I even have art for them, there's no reason not to use them again. So, that makes sense. So yeah. does your story have any bad guys without giving spoilers, obviously? Uh, and, and you know, what can you tell us about the, the antagonist for the story? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, there's a few that get introduced at the end of book one, which I can't really go into because details about them would be considered spoilers. Um, then as the story goes on and the conflict you know escalates, there are more um, villains that, that end up being pulled into it, you know, more powerful villains. And I try and, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to have a bunch because there are a few villains who I wanted to be reoccurring, you know, throughout much, if not most of the series, but I didn't want them to become, you know, type of villain who shows up every week and gets defeated every week. So I wanted to, you know, introduce some more villains as I went on. So I could have, you know, some books focus on one villain in particular, or, you know, some new villain, you know, gets introduced at the end of a book or something like that. So that I have a variety so that you could have different conflicts with different villains and some villains, you know, who last just one book, some villains who last, you know, 10 books and counting some, you know, who last five books. I really wanted to have a variety there too. And also villains, that are you know, really hateable and villains who are not you know, idiots because of this genre also and not of the anime in the genre there are often people actually criticize the villains as kind of i guess you know bland or just kind of you know i don't know if one note is the best way to put it but kind of just they're not they're not, they're not particularly menacing or they're not particularly they're not, they're not you know as hateable as you might like from a villain a lot of the time so i really wanted you know very hateable villains um, who might believe they're doing the right thing but as far as the main character is concerned, there's really nothing redeemable about them most of the time. And, you know, villains who are, are legitimate threats who are not, you know, idiots. I mean, they might still lose, but they're not, you know, going to be doing something completely stupid, which, you know, always kind of annoys me when villains are just, you know, that dumb. Yeah, the too stupid to live ones. Yeah, I, yeah. Get, I get you there. So what is your main character's name? I don't think I ever asked that. So what is his name? Uh, his name is Uriel. Okay, so which, which, which is an intentional, like thematic thing because Uriel in Hebrew essentially means God's light, and so I gave the character, you know, mag magic that lets him control light, and the title by unto another world. So I kind of you know leaned into that theme a bit with my character's name. That makes sense, and uh, that's that's a neat tie-in. I wouldn't like, obviously if you ha if you hadn't told us, we wouldn't know. But that's that's still kind of cool when people do that that's one of the hardest things sometimes i think as an author is naming the damn characters because yeah, you want like just yeah. so so if uriel yeah. met you in a back alley after all the things you've put him through in the first five first ten books how do you see that interaction playing out um i think we probably get along i mean in terms of our worldviews we probably would get along you know very well and i think and he's a kind of he's a kind of character both because of his you know practical personality and also because of his religious attitude that he kind of, you know, accepts, you know, things that happen, they're kind of meant to happen. And I just have to do, do my best to, you know, manage myself in the situations. I don't think he'd be mad at me for putting it through something. He's, he's, he's done decently well for himself so far, despite, you know, the various struggles of the, you know, the various conflicts he ends up involved in. So I like to think that if he was real, we'd kind of, you know, hang out, we would be friends. 
Okay. Since we've talked about characters, do you have a favorite character archetype that you use when you write? Um, I don't know. If any, I don't think there's any particular one that comes to mind right away. I mean, obviously, I like, you know, clearly heroic characters. I mean, there, like, there is a room. There is plenty of room for characters who are more gray morality. But I much more prefer, you know, directly heroic characters because I want heroes that are really easy to root for and who are just, you know, good people. So I guess if that's an archetype, I guess that counts. I mean, also, I mean, I like having different side characters who have different different backstories, like some who have you know, a more mysterious backstory that kind of gets unveiled over the course of the series, or you know, the more uh, the more I guess sarcastic type side characters who just you know play off the main character in, in entertaining ways, and then you know, the more I guess you know more earnest, more you know soft spoken side characters who also they might have you know a more uh, maybe not a more violent side, but who have like a different side to them that you know, like you know the nice person who, you, who if you ever manage to piss them off, kind of gets scary. Okay. So for the for the Ariel when he was going to the to work and he got pulled over, did he bring anything with him like equipment wise? I don't even know yeah. if you would have had your rifles on you or would that have been in the armory? Yeah. He, um, well, yeah, he well he would have, and he did because he was a he. I mean, in his life on our world, he was a tank commander. So, in tank and any combat soldier in the IDF, generally speaking, carries their rifle. You know, when they're off base, also, and off duty. So, yeah, he did have his his gun. He had you know whatever ammo he had on him, and whatever else he was carrying in his in his backpack at the time. You're know, going to base for planning to be there for a couple of weeks. So he has you know. That's not a thing he has to deal with, you know, early in the series is he has, you know, a modern, you know, like an M4, M16 type rifle, but he only has, you know, a few dozen bullets because he only carried a, like two or a couple of, even the standard and the idea is you carry two magazines on you when you have a gun. So you have one that's either, you know, in the gun or strapped to the gun and then another one in your pocket or in your bag. And so he basically has, you know, um, nearly, I guess, well, would be 30, but in the idea also, at least until recently, the convention was to keep 29 in the magazine because I guess it was a train of thought that it would keep the springs a little longer if you don't fully load it all the time. I don't know how true that is. I think it's kind of being going away with, but so you would have, you know, at least 58 bullets plus maybe some spares that kind of, you know, were hiding out in his bag somewhere. But so, you know, early on he has to, you know, he has to, you know, realize that I can't use this to solve all my problems because I'm going to run out of bullets before I realize it. So he has to, uh, you know, adapt a little bit more to weapons of this world. Plus, as you can see in some of the book covers, um, there are, you know, other firearms that he helps introduce to this world because he doesn't care about the prime directive as, you know, they have in Star Trek. He's like, if I have the knowledge how to make, you know, flintlock weapons, because I grew up in like, you know, in like a more like, like rural-ish like Pennsylvania and I we grew up around guns. I know how to how they work and how to make them. And they would help me out over here. I'm gonna make them and tell my friends how to make them also because you might need them. Okay, okay. So the um, were the guns. So the guns were something that he introduced, or did they already have them? Because there's a lot that no, goes into making them too. Yeah, no, he introduced them because he. I mean, I set it up into the plot that he had. I mean, it's not really a spoiler that he had been planning like a project when he next went home to kind of just build something from scratch. He's also kind of enjoyed like the American revolutionary period. So we kind of knew a lot about the guns from that period in particular and, you know, the various components that you need to make it and how they function. And then this world, 
was advanced, the fancy roll was advanced enough that they had, you know, black powder or something close enough to that that it would work for the guns. So all it really would take was for him to, you know, show them how to make effective weapons to use it in and then, you know, get the ball rolling. Okay. That's still cool. I, I like that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah it's fun so, that a character could use their knowledge from our world, you know, around the fantasy world to, you know, bring whether it's, you know, different ideas or different weapons in that could impact, you know, the future of that world, basically. Most people wouldn't be able to do that. Because if you think about it, like I can tell you how to drive a car. That doesn't mean I could build one from scratch. Yeah. And even if I, I'm a mechanic, that doesn't mean I could mill the part. So like a modern equipment is a lot more complex than people give it credit yeah. for with a lot of specialized subtasks. So, you know, it would be a lot harder than people thought to just, oh, I'm going to go back and build a machine gun and rule the world. Like, eh, yeah. Maybe not so much. Yeah. Well, that's why I haven't started out at least with, you know, much simpler, you know, muscle loading you know, weapons that have fewer moving parts that are, you know, a lot simpler to build. I mean, still, there's still some complicated aspects to them, of course, but it's, you know, compared to trying to build, you know, a modern rifle or, you know, smokeless powder with like, you know, primers and the bullets and everything, it's much easier to just, you know, you know, get, make a little, the little packets of black powder with the ball in it and, you know, have it, you know, with a, you know, shove it down the muzzle loaders and then you have, you have a, a rifle or you have a, a musket. So, yeah, I mean, it's and muskets are doable if you have the the basic know how. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's 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 very believable. I think. Yeah, and cannons so, too, because cannons are just bigger versions of muskets, essentially. Yeah, and although you have to have basic understanding of forging, the bigger it gets, the more yeah. skills you require. I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what can you tell us about the larger universe? So, in many stories, the world where the story takes place is as much a character as the protagonist and antagonist. So, what can we expect from the universe that? that is the light unto another world. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to get overly complicated with the, the world itself, both because of the more, I guess, narrow nature of the story. And also because I wanted it to be familiar enough to fans of the genre, like in terms of different species you see in it, like they're typically the kinds of species you'll see in a lot of different anime of the same genre where it's, you know, you have elves, you'll have like, you know, people who are like part animal, part human. So I didn't really, I didn't want to get, you know, too elaborate with different species and stuff. Because I wanted to be, you know, easily accessible to anybody who likes this type of stuff in the first place. But I mean, the world itself, I mean, I, like I have been uh, gradually expanding, you know, the scope of it and the world's history and how that plays into the plot as the series goes along in terms of, you know, how the world is run or who, who holds, you know, power beyond, you know, the, the, the leaders of various kingdoms. And you know that plays a lot into, especially plays a lot into this new set of volumes, where I mean, really, really the end of volume five that kind of is what really leads into this these volumes, where um, very different forces that are you know powerful in this world start taking notice of my main character and his friends, and not in the not in a good way, and so they kind of get on their bad side, and that that makes this set of volumes you know a little bit more of a challenge for them in terms of who they're fighting. I guess the first these are the first volumes where some of the characters on the cover are are villains. I mean, you could probably tell based on how they're drawn on the covers, maybe. But um, so some, you know, there's I guess there's much more powerful enemies they have to face now as the conflict that started off, you know, in the early volumes really escalates and becomes I mean, not necessarily world spanning, but definitely you know continent spanning as I open um, in relation to where the main character is and all that's going on. Okay, that definitely sounds interesting. You got me interested, and I wouldn't normally read this kind of stuff. 
So we know that uh, this is clearly part of a series because you've got 10 books currently written. But after yeah. that, is their stories done? Um, what's next? No, no, there's this more. This is, there's plenty more. I mean, this is probably going to end up being 20-something volumes. I don't know how many exactly because I can't. I haven't outlined that far. I've outlined through volume 15 as of yesterday. Uh, but based on I – mean, I, I know, you know, the – some of the major plot points that need to be hit before the story ends. So based off of that, I know that I'm going to need at least 20 volumes, probably. I mean, not more, not more than 25, I don't think, but between 20 and 25, uh, once I get, once I get to volume 20, then I'll be able to know for sure, you know, how many for that last batch I'm going to need to do to uh, finish it off. But there is definitely like an end in sight. I'm not going to, it's not one of those series that's going to kind of meander on forever. Like I have a definitive, end game in mind for how I want it to go and the, the, the final conflicts and stuff, which obviously I won't talk about because that's definitely a spoiler, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's plenty more to come. And I mean, my plan hopefully is to, you know, do five volumes a year because they are relatively short. Although once I get my, I'm getting my, my manga project started next year. So I'll see, you know, in terms of these, in terms of the art production, how that impacts, you know, the pace of this, but Worst case, it'll be maybe a year and a half, you know, by the next for the next five volumes and not a year. But I mean, since they're all five outlined now, it's gonna as soon as all the editing for these five are done, I'm gonna start at least you know the initial drafts of those and gradually move along. I mean, also depends on you know how busy I am because I wrote the first five volumes during the first COVID lockdown, where I had nothing else to do because I couldn't leave my. It's not the well, I, I guess I could leave somewhat, but there was nowhere to go because everything was closed. So over and I wasn't working at the time. So over like three months, I wrote five books because that's all I did. And obviously, these five took a little bit longer because I was working while I was writing them, and you know I was actually able to go out and do things again. So hopefully, I mean, well, I, I don't I don't want things to lock down again, but hopefully, I'll be able to manage my time effectively to get the next five out, you know, in a timely manner, and obviously work with my artist to get that all done because that takes time. Also, my, also my artist. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've got to see the video. On the Kickstarter page, but he also did animation, uh, which is really. Oh, amazing. I did. I saw that. That was amazing. I even linked to the Kickstarter, obviously, for reason because we want people to back it. But the video was just too cool. Yeah, I mean, I was. I mean, once I realized that he does animation too, I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to get you to do something for this." Even though it took, it took quite a bit longer than both of us thought it was going to take for various reasons, but it was worth it. I mean, I think like I don't, I don't know what the rates are on Kickstarter of like video like watches. But like over 42, like over 40% of people who watch the video finish the entire video, which is, I think, a yeah. pretty good percentage. And like over like almost 100 people have watched the video. So, I mean, that's pretty good, I think, because, I mean, it is, you know, meant to be eye-catching. Also, it helps, you know, if I'm running ads with the video in it, it's also another way to catch more eyes. And it's just, you know, having the opportunity to see my characters animated is always just a fun opportunity to have. I really just, you know, I had, I had to jump on it. And I'll probably do it again for my for my next project, also for the for the manga, because I know an artist, you know, who's, you know, animation isn't cheap, no matter how, no matter you know what the rates are, but comparatively, it was affordable enough, you know, for me to be able to do it, and and it came out really really great. I mean, everybody who's watched it said it's amazing, and, and there's actually a few more scenes that aren't finished yet that we just I just didn't want to push off the launch, you know, even more so. Either they'll be done by the campaign's end, or shortly afterward, I'll have another few scenes to add to, like maybe a, like a modified version of the trailer, just you know for general advertising. 
But yeah, it's been a lot of fun seeing them come to life in that way because usually you don't get to see that unless you get, you know, magic TV adaptation or something or fans do it or whatever. So I'm really, I was really lucky that I was able to, uh, to, to see this happen myself, especially so, I mean, relatively speaking, relatively speaking. the project's life. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of sci uh, technology and magic can we expect? Obviously you mentioned light magic from Uriel, but what kind of uh, tech and magic can we expect? Uh, magic wise, I, magic -wise I kept things a little uh, simple in terms of like there's a lot of you know, elemental magic. Like, the magic on this world is like mostly like vocal cast. So they have to the spells that go with it. Like pretty like, simple spells, like, you know, spells that mostly, you know, essentially describe what you're doing. Although I did add one little twist in it where there are spell requirements um, force you to use what the magic considers your ancestral language. So for Uriel, he has to use Hebrew to use his magic. Okay. Um, and on this world also, the different species, like if there's an elf using magic, they have to use their language. And the other species will use whatever, the, you know, the more standard language of the, of the planet. And if anybody else from our world happened to be on this planet, they would have had to use whatever language the magic determines is their, you know, ancestral language. So, and then and beyond that, I mean, like I, I, I tried to be, able to be a little bit more open about what it could do. I mean, there's limitations on like certain, like most mages of how much they could do per day, but that could be affected by how powerful the spell is and things like that. And, and certain, you know, the more powerful mages obviously could do more powerful stuff, you know, more until they're, you know, they're out of energy. And, uh, but there's no, there's no like video game mechanics or anything like that. So I, I wanted to get away from that. A lot of these isekai stuff in Japan use a lot of video game mechanics because I guess it makes certain things easier, but it kind of bothers me a lot because it doesn't feel like a real world as much unless it's supposed to be a video, video game. Like there are some shows where the character, the main character is pulled into a video game where it makes sense that the mechanics are the mechanics of the game. But if it's not explicitly a game world, I don't really like the game mechanics because it doesn't make the world the world doesn't feel quite as alive when you have that. So I wanted it to be, you know, a little bit, I guess, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a softer magic than I've had in my other fantasy book, I guess, if that makes sense. It does. So of all of the magic that you have, um, is there any one type of magic that's used in this book that you'd want for your daily life here? Um, well, I can, I can make use of any of it, to be honest. But I mean, obviously, I mean, well, the one that would biggest had the biggest impact, I think, in our world was probably healing magic, because I mean, that would revolutionize healthcare. Though obviously, it would be limited in how much it could be used, because only certain people would have access to it, because only the mages who could use it could use it. But that would be really, you know, interesting to have. I mean, it would kind of affect power balances, and actually, in this world now that, now that I think about it you know, if certain countries control the access to it and things like that. But I mean, also obviously, you know, I mean, being able to throw fireballs around would be kind of neat. And, uh, well, also, and also it would be fun to have even the light magic that Uriah has is because I, I intentionally wanted him because also this, well, this is actually another trope that I wanted to avoid in my series. Cause a lot of the Isekai come out of Japan, the main character is very overpowered to the point where it's, there's not as much, of, of uh, attention in the series because the main character is so powerful that most of the enemies are not a, really a match for them and also makes the side characters kind of useless a lot of the time because what's, what, what are they there for if the main character could beat the enemies on his own? So I wanted to give him magic, but magic that requires him to be clever to figure out how to use it effectively. So like obviously you're not going to be able to blow, blow up things with light magic, 
but you could think about find ways to use, you know, lenses or mirrors to kind of amplify it, you know, to burn stuff, or you could, you know, you could like, you know, bend light to turn invisible, or even just use light, you know, in the middle of a sword fight to send off like a strobe light in somebody's face and, you know, blind them for a second while you, while you, while you kill them. So, I mean, there's a lot of things you could do with it, but it requires you to be much more of a clever fighter than just, you know, a brute force. I have a fireball. I'm going to throw it in your face. So do you have, like, you mentioned that they, the magic is used by whatever your ancestral language is. So I could think yeah. of lots of scenarios where your ancestral language might be one thing, but you might not speak it. So does that yes. come up? Not with, well, with my main character, with Uriel, fortunately, he'd already, you know, he's, you know, been in Israel for a little while. He's been in the army. So his Hebrew is good enough that it works. And I think technically his grammar might be a little bit off because I actually am I'm having the first book translated to Hebrew right now, actually. To make it easier to sell locally because there are people who came up to me and said they'd love to buy it but they don't read english very well and so my translator did know at least one time where his you know the way he said a phrase was technically i mean like in a technical sense you know it's understandable what he means but it's you wouldn't normally be said that way because he's not a native speaker which i was totally intentional i promise uh not not my own uh non-native speaker um getting into the series but yeah so it would i mean if if there was anybody else from our world, you know, who for whatever reason didn't speak their ancestral language as the magic determines it, yeah, it would be a problem for them. I, mean, I can't really get into more without spoiling things, but um, that might happen at some point where there's somebody from our world who uh, has a little bit of a harder time because they don't speak whatever the magic wants them to speak. Okay, I could see that being interesting. So obviously, based on the art, you have fantastical creatures in your. Um, in your series. So what kind of creatures do you have? What can we expect to see? Uh, well, in terms of the species, I mean, you have, you know, you have elves, you have what are referred to as demi-humans, which is also a standard species. You see like, you know, the part, part animal, part person uh, that you have in a lot of, in a lot of anime uh, style stuff. So like I have a variety of those. I have one that's uh, like a part, part human, part snake, part human, part cat, part human, part moth. And there are others that, aren't necessarily on the covers that you know are in the universe or will show up later and i have another character who was on the cover of volume six the furthest on the left well my left on the screen who is species that i call a flameborn who's kind of like made of kind of made of stone and ionic fire which is based off a of magic the gathering species actually from a number of years ago that they didn't do a lot with and i was like that looks cool i want to use that so um so i have those um There'll be probably a couple other ones that haven't appeared yet that will show up later. And also one of my characters is a shapeshifter who would kind of turn into um, um, like a, a beast, essentially. You can see her in the trailer, in the animated trailer. And she's on the, the last two covers of this set. One of them, she's actually in the middle of a transforming. So you get a little bit of a taste of that. But otherwise, um, otherwise, yeah, otherwise, you know, like as I said, there's the elves and there are other humans in this world too. And so uh, we've we obviously what you've listed so far is stuff that you know is i don't want to say standard uh, fantasy fair but it's definitely not like oh i've never heard of this before so are there any creatures that you add specifically that you think are unique to this world that that haven't been elsewhere uh yeah there's a couple of monsters i think i mean i'm sure you could find like there's always you know things that are similar looking because there's been so much fantasy written and drawn over the last you know a few decades that you could always find you know something similar enough that you can say oh maybe that's inspired by that or i mean whether whether it is or not but i mean there were a couple of different monsters and there's one, one in particular like a really giant 
monster that they fight, I think, in volume two. Um, that I don't know if I can think of anything directly like that it's equivalent to. I mean, I'm sure there's something, again, there are, you know, giant monsters in fantasy, um, other kinds of fantasy, but this specific monster that I kind of created on my own for this and a few other like, different, you know, creatures um, that, um, that uh, what's it called, that, that are, I guess, you know, my own creation. I mean, again, you can, like, there'll be uh, overlap with other stuff. Like, you know, you can, two people, two different authors could create, you know, insect, you know, based monsters that, you know, they're both insect monsters, but they look differently from different aspects or they function differently. And, um, and also in terms of, you know, different, you know, different species also, I could take, you know, this, the same type of species and just do a little bit of a, a slight change on, on, you know, how they, you know, different species of elves and different fantasy universes are, you know, there's always some overlap, but there's also differences in terms of their culture or in terms of, you know, their general appearance or their attitudes. And, um, and also with the demi-humans, with the part human, part animal, I mean, I don't think, I don't think I've seen moth people um, done a whole lot, even in Japanese. Stuff. I mean, I've seen other art of it, but not in terms of like a main race or sub race in that setting. So I guess you know, that one is a little bit unusual, but I, I decided I had, I decided once I knew I, my main character was going to have light magic, I had to have a moth involved somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how much of that was inspired by Kafka? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, because every the characters look, look good. They don't look ugly. <laughs> <laughs> fair point fair point all right so obviously this is winding down and i know it's early so well i guess it's almost morning for you um as we're recording this uh but uh, we're going to definitely air this early so i'm going to you're going to be listening to this dear listener on thursday instead of our normal friday because i wanted you to have time to check this out while the kickstarter was up and pumping um because this kickstarter ends on the 18th obviously when the kickstarter ends as he discussed you can buy these books over on uh, amazon but uh, it sounds like the best deal around is if you back it to the degree that you get all ten. So if you're if you're new to this world, ten books that's that's not a bad deal for eighteen bucks. That was was that eighteen US or, or is that your yeah, local? 18, yeah, eighteen eighteen US for the ebooks. Okay, and, and, and ebook ebooks for sure the best way to get it and cheap. I mean, it comes out to less than two dollars a book at that point. So like you're not gonna find anything cheaper on, on Amazon. They're not gonna be that cheap. So. So if this sounds interesting to you, it's a steal of a deal, and you'd be a, you'd be crazy not to take it. But uh, before we wrap this up, was there anything about the Light Unto Another World series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us? Um, I don't think anything specific. I mean, just that you know, it's, it's a, I, I wrote it very much with the idea that anybody who can enjoy, even if they're whether they're a fan of the genre and familiar with all the different, you know, more common tropes of it, or if they're just a fan of fantasy in general, or if they know, you know. Uh, portal fantasies that are not, you know, anime inspired. I mean, there's something I think it, it can be easily enjoyed by everybody. I mean, easy, easily enjoyed by people who are Jewish and, you know, will understand, you know, without, I mean, there are translations in the book you know, of anything that's spoken in Hebrew when it's relevant. But obviously, you know, someone who's Jewish will get a different, a little bit of a different, um, something different from it than somebody who's not Jewish. But I want it to be understandable and accessible by everybody. But my main beta reader, he's not Jewish. So, I have a, a couple, a pair of eyes on it, who can make sure that anything that I put in there is easily accessible for anybody, no matter what their background is. Because you know, I want everybody to be able to enjoy it, and everybody who's read it so far, who I've spoken to, you know, who's you know talked to me about it, they all seem to enjoy it a great deal. Like just a fun, like a fun, you know, I wouldn't not really a lighthearted, but it's you know, I guess a little bit of a lighter fantasy. It's not, it's not you know, particularly dark, although there are you know, dark moments, but 
it's, you know, a more, I guess, an uplifting fantasy, you know, very positive and, you know, good characters, fun characters. Like, I like I really enjoy how my main team, of, like, the main group of seven kind of came together and, uh, and how they interact with each other all the time and the different how the different relationships, you know, progress over the course of now 10, 10 books going on 15. And, um, and also anybody who, who likes, you know, the idea of, an openly religious character in a fantasy setting that you don't see very much, whether it's Jewish or otherwise, you just don't see that a whole lot these days. And also, you know, a soldier in another world, which is different. It gives, it gives him a different approach to things in terms of how he, how he you know, deals with problems. And then later on, how he tries to proactively prepare and solve for things because he's somebody who did have experience in this world. And he did even have a little bit of command experience because he was a tank commander. So, you know, he commanded a grand total of three other guys. So he has a little bit, little bit of experience giving orders, which will help him, you know, as things go along here. Although obviously commanding three guys, is not the same as commanding uh, a whole unit of guys, but that's something he has to figure out over the, over the course of the series to realize that that's something so, a little bit harder than you think they are. So you obviously made this guy a tanker. So, and tankers have that famous uh, mantra of death before dismount. So how long did it take for him to get his own fantasy version of a tank? So he didn't, you know, Go insane uh, from walking. Five volumes. I mean, you, actually, on the volume <laughs> eight cover, the middle one on the on the screen here, you can see them in the background a little bit. Yeah, I saw that. That's why I asked. So, yeah. So yeah, he does. You know, eventually, because I mean, a ta any tanker, you know, is a very firm believer in the fact that tanks, you know, lead the way, and tanks are a difference maker in any kind of large battle situation. So it was a matter of time. You know, once it was a matter, it was really just a matter of figuring out how to make one be able to move. Because that's the hardest part, making anything out of, you know, out of metal, even if it's not as big as a modern tank would be. So how to make it work and also how to give it armament, because you're not going to be inventing a proper tank cannon off the fly. I mean, maybe and eventually, but like at the start, you're not going to, you can't put a muzzle loading cannon on the tank because you have to then have half the crew go outside to load it again. So that really wouldn't work. But, um, but yeah, you definitely... Um, you know, had had in mind, you know, probably earlier than he actually make executes on it to make at least a few of them because in a world where the most powerful non-magic weapons are, I guess, you know, maybe some siege weapons like, you know, uh, um, uh, trebuchet or, you know, heavy crossbows, having even a handful of tanks in an army is going to be a huge difference when you're, you know, attacking, a, you know, that, uh, attacking the enemy. And also, of course, having those good firearms on your side, you know, completely changes the balance of warfare too. So, so yeah, so, so it, was, it, was always, it was always in my mind that he's going to have, you know, proto tanks as I call them in the book, because they're not really tanks, but they're close enough. So what age range would it be for this story? Cause we have several families that listen to this that I happen to know of personally. Um, they listen to this podcast with their children. So what age range would these books be sort of okay for? Um, I mean, high school, I would say for sure is fine, possibly even a little younger, but I mean, I could say with 100% certainty that, you know, that high school age kids would be completely fine reading. I mean, like you know, this type of genre and anime, you know, series like on TV and stuff, and that's all aimed at, you know, also like teenagers. This is this not specifically aimed at teenagers, but obviously it's very much able, you know, appropriate for them and enjoyable for them. I mean, like there's nothing, you know, I mean, there's obviously there's no nudity in my art or anything because I don't want that anyway as a religious person myself. I'm not, you know, going to have that commission for myself. So, um, so yeah, and, you know, it's, you know, 
Um, and the violence too. It's I, I don't go into graphic detail about violence. I mean, like, you know, there, there is plenty of fighting and killing. There's, you know, a lot of battles going on, but like, I think it was Brandon Sanderson who, who talked about years ago, how you could have different scenes in a book where the same scene could be, if it was tr- transferred to film could be any different rating you want based on how you film it or how you describe it. So the same kind of way, you know, both with, you know, potential nudity in scenes or whether with, you know, battle scenes where you could describe a battle scene in a way that, you know, is horrifyingly violent and not appropriate for, for anybody, you know, younger than like 21 or something, or you could describe it in a way that, you know, not, and I wouldn't call it cartoony, but, you know, it's not as detailed, you're not describing, you know, the, the different wounds people receive from getting shot with a musket ball or something, but they can still be shot all the same. So, so I try and, you know, like without, without, without trying to, fall into the trap of trying to appeal to everybody, which is never going to happen. I do try and make it as accessible as possible to, you know, the widest audience possible because there's more potential readers that way. That makes sense. So uh, before we let you go, dear listener, because we've asked all of our questions and while we could keep talking about this forever, it's like four o'clock in the morning his time. So I'm going to cut the guy some slack, but um, obviously please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms your reviews help the right reader find the right book so if you buy these and like them once they hop on over to the amazons uh go over and leave a review and tell everybody about it uh he would greatly appreciate that um but uh yakov before we let you go can you tell listeners how they can find you and obviously um that will be in the show notes as well yeah i mean apart from the kickstarter obviously there's my website yakovmerkin.com which is just my name so I try and keep it easy. Uh, Twitter also is just you know, my name, uh, Yakov Merkin. Instagram is my only different one, where it's the uh, it's the, uh, the the novel Ninja, because I also I also trained for Ninja Warrior. So I thought it was a funny a funny pun to you know put novel because of the whole you know novel can mean books and also means new. So I kind of played a little bit of a pun in there. So I'm on Instagram uh, also, and um, and obviously Amazon. And also, oh, and also Patreon, where I have you know, different uh, possible reward tiers for different for uh, people who support me on there. Like I you know, like one major thing for Patreon is you know new artwork and stuff that I could share. I mean, I can't share all the art because some of it's spoilery, but otherwise, I share all of my art and animation stuff early from my Patreons. So um, that's a fun place to to you know support me. Also, just for a few dollars a month. And get access to all of that, and potentially more, depending on different tiers. And so that's Patreon.com/slash Yakov Merkin. Also, just my name. So also pretty simple to remember. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much all of my active or relatively active uh, online locations right now. Um, all right, so that's all in the show notes, dear listener. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com/sf underscore fantasy underscore show again sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com you can find us on facebook where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can uh find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on uh or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley 
Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's a thing, people. And um, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and J.R. Hanley. Wait, I'm J.R. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. See, this is what Doc normally reads. But we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And if you want to hear the other interview with uh, with Yakov, check out Archive Episode 36, people. It's worth it. It's fun. And he talks about his ninja experience. So have a wonderful evening. <laughs>